You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. In the spring of 1945, as the Allies approached victory over the Axis powers, Japan considered launching a terrifying attack on the U.S. mainland. Though the plan's codename, Operation Cherry Blossoms at Night, sounded perfectly innocent, the plot was anything but. The Japanese military planned to use both kamikaze pilots and balloon bombs to blanket Southern California with fleas carrying the bubonic plague, the same disease that wiped out about a third of Europe in just a few years during the mid-14th century. And Japan was confident that they could pull it off because they'd already done it elsewhere during the war several times before. Here's how close America came to being their next target and how the plan ultimately fell through. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting. I'm staff writer Marco Margaritoff, and today we'll be covering Japan's failed plan to bomb the United States with the bubonic plague. Japanese General Shiro Ishii wasn't your average military commander. In fact, he was a microbiologist, and he led Japan's Covert Chemical Warfare Research Division, Unit 731. In a remote facility in Japanese-occupied Manchuria, Ishii and his team created some of the most disturbing weapons and carried out some of the most torturous experiments in modern history. The biological weapons program used Chinese civilians as test subjects in experiments so macabre that Japanese officials, desperate to bury the stories, only spoke about them some 50 years later, and could barely even bring themselves to do it then. Subjects were locked in chambers filled with increasingly pressurized air until their eyes burst from their sockets to determine how much pressure they could stand. Others were left outside in the freezing cold with their arms dipped in water until frostbite set in then put next to open flames, just to see what happened. One former medical worker at Unit 731, Takeo Wano, said he saw a man get pickled in a six-foot-high glass jar, after being vertically cut into two pieces. More jars held the heads, feet, or entire bodies of other victims. Outside of human experiments, the disturbing research of Unit 731 largely focused on germ warfare, which Japan soon put into action. Starting in late 1940, Japanese forces bombed several Chinese cities, including Ningbo and Changde, with bubonic plague-infected fleas. Nine-year-old survivor Qiu Mingxuan, who ultimately became an epidemiologist as a result of the experience, later recalled that terrifying time in Ningbo in the fall of 1940. I can still remember the panic among the people. Everybody kept their doors closed and was afraid to go out. The stores were closed down, the schools were closed down, but by December, the Japanese airplanes came to drop bombs almost every day. We couldn't keep the quarantine area closed. The people inside ran to the countryside, carrying the plague germs with them. Mingxuan estimated that at least 50,000 citizens died from the bombardments, but for Unit 731, this was a resounding success, 
and one they'd soon try to replicate in the United States. Before attempting to use plague warfare against the US, Japan plotted a more traditional attack against the American mainland. The Japanese launched several hundred large balloon bombs that floated all the way across the Pacific Ocean to America's west coast, the longest range attacks in the history of human warfare at the time. While as many as 200 to 300 balloon bombs reportedly made the full journey, only one ever exploded. On May 5, 1945, a pregnant woman named Elsie Mitchell and five of her young Sunday school students were killed when they happened upon a balloon bomb during a picnic in the forest near Gearhart Mountain in southern Oregon. However, the U.S. government censored reports of the incident for fear of inciting mass panic. Operation Cherry Blossoms at Night, of course, was designed to wreak infinitely more havoc, and in early 1945, the plan was taking shape. Toshimi Misobuchi, the instructor for new recruits at Unit 731, would take 20 of the 500 new troops who arrived in Harbin in 1945 to the Southern California coast via submarine. The suicidal pilots would then man planes housed aboard the submarine and fly them to San Diego. Then they'd either crash or drop bombs, releasing countless plague-riddled fleas. The date of the attack was set for September 22, 1945. But the plan never became a reality. If the Japanese had already waged germ warfare against China and successfully attacked American targets from the sky at Pearl Harbor, why didn't their plan to strike America with biological weapons come to pass? One Japanese Navy specialist claimed a consolidation of forces at that point in the war prevented the attack. He explained that the Navy would have never approved this mission in mid-1945, as protecting Japan's most valuable islands was a much higher priority than launching an ambitious attack on the U.S. Meanwhile, Unit 731 began disintegrating amid fears of being found out as the war neared its end. Japan had already been disposing of as much Unit 731-related evidence as possible by mid-1945. The war did, of course, end in the Pacific in August of that year, with Japan's surrender, but a vast amount of Unit 731's research survived, and General Shiro Ishii was granted immunity by the U.S. in exchange for his scientific insights from the cruel experiments he conducted. But had the war continued past August, and still been raging when the planned attack date of September 22 arrived, would the Japanese have followed through? How close Japan truly got to executing Operation Cherry Blossoms at night is debated to this day. One thing is clear, however. General Hideki Tojo rejected the germ warfare plot during a critical meeting in July 1945. He knew Japan was nearing defeat, and that this final mad dash would only further intensify America's retaliation efforts. Even though Unit 731 didn't execute Operation Cherry Blossoms at night, its litany of atrocities is endless, but consequences after the war were almost non-existent. Protected by the U.S., Shiro Ishii, for one, lived out his life in peace until he died of throat cancer in 1959, 
Many of his underlings were later promoted to various positions of power in the Japanese government after the war. One became Tokyo's governor, the other head of the Japan Medical Association. On the other hand, the Khabarovsk war crime trials in 1945 did see 12 members of the Kwantung army tried in court. Transcripts revealed that, quote, the fleas were intended for the purpose of preserving the germs, of carrying them, and of directly infecting human beings. Many of the men involved had escaped the legal consequences, but were never able to forget the cruel experimentation of Unit 731. Chief of the Attack Force of Operation Cherry Blossoms, Ishio Obata, and witness to horrid research at Harbin, refused to engage when prodded for the truth in the 1990s. Obata said, It is such a terrible memory that I don't want to recall it. I don't want to think about Unit 731. Fifty years have passed since the war. Please let me remain silent. Perhaps most disturbing were those who didn't regret what they had done. For the Unit 731 medic who cut one prisoner into pieces without anesthesia, it was all rather logical. Vivisection should be done under normal circumstances, he said. If we'd used anesthesia, that might have affected the body organs and blood vessels that we were examining, so we couldn't use anesthesia. Finally, when asked about the children they tortured, he offered the following. Of course there were experiments on children, but probably their fathers were spies. There's a possibility this could happen again, because in a war, you have to win. But though Operation Cherry Blossoms at Night never happened, a series of haunting questions remain that illuminate how close the U.S. might have come to a kind of destruction scarcely glimpsed in all of human history. What if Tojo hadn't protested at that one meeting? What if Unit 731 hadn't been too consumed with hiding its crimes to stay on top of their plans? What if the war had ended just a few weeks later, after the September 22 attack date? And, perhaps most haunting of all, if the Japanese had gotten closer to completing the mission that we're aware of today, would the public have even been informed? The dark truth is that we may never know. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.